I think uh, the term in flux is a nice way of capturing what is happening on the right of, of British politics. I think it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting time, given what we saw last week at the county council elections. Of course, UKIP is not um, an extreme right-wing party in the sense that the British National Party is, but it's certainly a party that plays on radical right uh, themes. But, but one of the neglected stories, I think, of the local election was the complete demise of the traditional far right, a movement that over the last 10 years has captivated our imagination, has received a great deal of media attention, has also generated in some quarters considerable alarm about the impact of uh, far-right politics on social cohesion um, and as representing a broader trend in our perhaps hardening attitudes towards issues like immigration. But the sort of British electorate's um, flirtation with uh, the far-right in the form of Nick Griffin's BNP was, uh, was very brief. The party uh, rose and fell on the chart there uh, within a short period of time peaking really in 2009 with two seats in the European Parliament and attracting almost one million uh, voters at those elections. From then on though, the party experienced uh, considerable um, infighting, uh, the departure of key uh, organisers uh, and, and activists, and from June 2009 onwards, um, began to face um, some pretty fierce competition from uh, what we might loosely term the new post-BNP far-right, a more disorganised, more street-focused, uh, more confrontational expression of far-right politics that really emulates uh, what was seen in the 1970s with the National Front. So in that respect, I think the far-right in Britain has, has been on something of a journey and has now returned, actually, to to its roots, and I'll talk a little bit about that um, in a second. The elections last week really did confirm the, the collapse of the BNP, and just to put this in some perspective, the number of BNP candidates last week uh, dropped from well over 400 to only 100. The number of areas uh, or divisions that the BNP uh, could be seen in really collapsed from almost 120 to just 34. Uh, and, and perhaps more importantly, their average vote in the seat that they contested was effectively cut in two, falling from 11% uh, to only 5%. Now, 15,500 votes at these county council elections is really nothing, given that in 2009 the BNP was attracting almost 200,000 votes. So this party really is on its knees. And how bad was it? Well, when you look at the regional breakdown in BNP support and the way it's, it's collapsed in some of the party's key areas, this was a really bad day, actually, for the party. The only outlier here is Cumbria, and the reason that Cumbria is an outlier is because the party was really working hard in a couple of key wards, which, which led to upwards of 35-40% um, of the vote going to the BNP. But, but generally, the, 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 the picture across the board is one of um, a sort of consistent, steady, and sometimes dramatic uh, decline. Places like Essex, uh, Leicestershire, uh, Northamptonshire, Lancashire, these are places where the BNP really was um, beginning to entrench itself as a significant political force from 2006 onwards. Their voters have really abandoned the party. And actually, 
this wasn't simply because the BNP wasn't active in those areas. It was trying to campaign at these elections. The party's really been crippled because its membership has fallen from around 14,000 to probably certainly under 1,500. I'd even say probably under 1,000. And it's in a rump. Its kind of core base of activists has really dwindled, as many of those have headed into rival groups like, for example, the English Democrats. Um, so we've seen a consistent fall in BNP support, also in terms of where its candidates uh, are placing in those elections. I mean, the BNP did not win a single seat uh, last week. It didn't really come close to winning a seat. Um, so what does all of this mean? Where does it leave um, us as analysts of, of extreme right politics in Britain? And what does it mean for the future? <laughs> I think there are two competing hypotheses at a broad level, really. I mean, one is the, the positive perspective, which says, look, um, many of those who would be attracted to this brand of politics perhaps have either stepped away from the political arena altogether or perhaps have been hoovered up by a more respectable mainstream expression of radical right politics in the form of the UK Independence Party. Another sort of competing point of view, however, might say that in a way we should perhaps urge uh, caution over celebration if you are of that persuasion in looking at the collapse of the BNP, uh, the so-called pressure valve thesis that actually it's more healthy uh, for a liberal representative democracy to have um, a, uh, a viable extreme right party of elections because that sucks activists into the conventional political system um, and activists who might otherwise be engaging in more confrontational uh, and combative forms of uh, extreme right politics. And the, the useful example here would be somewhere like Germany, where historically in the post-war period you have a very unsuccessful extreme right electoral movement. The MPD, for example, at the moment, the National Democratic Party, is struggling to even enter state parliaments. Um, but at the same time, Germany has a very active, very confrontational, extra-parliamentary scene. So the sort of negative, pessimistic view of all of this would be, well, given the collapse of the BNP, perhaps what we may well uh, see uh, is the emergence of a more confrontational, uh, more unpredictable, more chaotic, more fragmented extreme-right scene, which simply has no interest in protest organisations like uh, UKIP and is far more uh, concerned with expressing their grievances and ideology through uh, non-electoral means. And just one side point, side point sorry, on that issue is that you, you have to understand that for many within the tradi traditional extreme right, UKIP is not a party that they would seriously entertain supporting. Uh, within the world of the extreme right, which is heavily ethnically nationalist, UKIP is often framed as being a civic nationalist, state-sponsored sellout party. So there is a very uh, rich and historic rivalry there. So I would certainly warn against the assumption that all of these guys would just be hoovered up into the radical right. So just to give you a sense of where things are going, at the local elections last year, there were, there were already 140 candidates from extreme right groups other than the BNP. So organisations that have been variously vying to replace uh, Nick Griffin and co. At the elections just gone last week, that number, that number had dwindled 
largely because the, the number of rivals to the BNP in the elections had fallen from around six or seven to really only two. One was the National Front, the lingering rump of the 1970s party, which somehow is still going, uh, and the other was the English Democrats, which has gone on record as saying that it is actively recruited ex-BNP organisers and activists. But of all of these sort of new far-right groups as such, the most significant is the, is the English Defence League, despite its recent problems, despite its infighting and factionalism. And the English Defence League is certainly the most significant um, uh, movement to have emerged since 2009. But as an organisation, and from the perspective of social science at least, we really don't know all that much about the English Defence League and similar groups uh, that surround that organisation uh, and also similar groups on the continent. And the English Defence League, in case you aren't aware, although I'm sure you, you are, was founded in June 2009, grew out of a series of protests in the town of Luton, Bedfordshire, uh, against uh, demonstrations by radical Islamist groups against British troops who were returning uh, from service. Um, but the English Defence League quickly snowballed um, through its strategy of march and grow, so holding demonstrations and marches as a way of um, uh, attracting recruits, and very quickly had somewhere in the region of 80 to 100,000 uh, subscribers on Facebook. Of course, not all of those would have been EDL supporters, many would have been anti-fascist observers and so on, but, but it's certainly a significant street-based uh, movement. And there are really three questions that I wanted to zoom in on today. I mean, the first is, what is a public view of the English Defence League? The BNP is heavily stigmatised. It never connected with the British electorate. Over 80% expressed negative feelings of the party. We actually don't know very much about what the British people uh, really think of the EDL. Uh, the second concerns the base of support. I mean, who's actively sympathetic towards the agenda of the English Defence League? To what extent are these the unemployed, marginalised, apathetic young men that many media uh, portrayals would have us believe? And thirdly, what are their concerns? Is this really a single issue, anti-Islam, anti-Muslim social movement that some portray the EDL? Or actually, is this a broader stable for people who are prejudiced more generally towards migrants and minorities, or perhaps feel more broadly under threat uh, from various trends. And those questions obviously have wider relevance. Um, looking across Europe, particularly since 2008, one of the more interesting developments within the extreme right has been the emergence of groups that have very little interest in elections. Um, these are often very small, they often lack resources, they certainly do not have the political influence that the Le Pen type parties in Europe have. But thinking through groups like the various defence leagues in Scandinavia, uh, thinking through more recent groups like Generation Identity in France, some groups like the Immortals in Germany as well, which have put a heavy emphasis on using street-based confrontation uh, and symbolic action as a way of attracting uh, the attention of potential new recruits uh, and influencing public policy from the outside. I mean, the English Defence League, for example, was founded with the explicit aim 
of influencing public policy towards Islam and British Muslim communities. It wasn't simply a haphazard um, protest group uh, that was hell-bent on uh, having confrontation with left-wing opponents. There was an explicit and quite uh, clearly defined aim behind it, behind English Defence League. Um, so this is a sort of something of a, a significant development uh, within the extreme right. And what we're looking at here uh, will be data that we've gathered from the YouGov online uh, panel. Uh, so it's survey data that we collected last October. And we are going to be looking explicitly at individuals who have openly sympathised with the English Defence League. So what I mean by that is respondents who said they were both aware of the English Defence League and what it stands for, and then secondly express sympathy for either the values or the methods of the English Defence League. Um, and I won't go too much into the data and methodology. The full paper for this, by the way, the academic paper is on academia.edu um, under, under my, uh, my page on there. So you can, you can get all the juicy details from that. For those who sort of haven't encountered EDL demonstrations, these are the kinds of scenes that you would be observing were you in the Rochdales, uh, Lutons or uh, Manchesters of the world. Um, a very heavy focus on mobilising public hostility to uh, Islam, um, trying to appropriate the narrative that was developed by people like Pimfortown Town in the Netherlands, trying to talk about defending women's rights, the rights of gay and lesbian communities against Islam, and trying to really connect with social groups who perhaps feel more generally under threat from immigration and rising diversity. So let me just present a few descriptives first of all. I mean, one of the things, and this is perhaps a reflection of my own bias maybe, but I was actually quite surprised by the extent to which, despite all of the attention and all of the publicity, the English Defence League is actually far from being a household name, somebody who kind of works within this area on a day-to-day -day basis. And I sort of live and breathe a world of far-right politics, which in itself is rather depressing. But, but, but still, only one-third of our uh, representative sample had heard of the English Defence League and said they know what it stands for. Well over, um, well over half had never heard of the English Defence League or were unsure about what it stands for. But there was, nonetheless, within those who, who, uh, who said they were aware of the organisation, there was a strong uh, view that this was a racist organisation despite the EDL's attempts to uh, portray itself as a non-racist, anti-Islam movement. I mean, the EDL has established divisions for members of the Sikh community and has tried to rally minorities uh, through its um, Islamophobic frame. Um, but nonetheless, voters are very unconvinced uh, and strongly associate the party with uh, race uh, and racism. And the EDL, uh, much like the BNP, actually, similar levels, is, is seen as being highly toxic. More than three quarters um, of those who said they were aware of the organisation said they would simply never consider joining the English Defence League. Um, and it, you know, this, is, this is, in some respects, a story about the English Defence League, but I think in other respects this is more generally a story about the new far right in Britain, that sort of awkward, fragmented, chaotic scene to the right 
very much to the right uh, of the UK Independence Party. And some early evidence, at least, that you know, perhaps some of those stereotypes do ring true in the sense that it, it, really, it, it really is the 18 to 24-year-olds who are most likely to consider membership of the English Defence League, although even, even here, these potential joiners are still very much a minority, only 19% of the 18 to 24-year-olds uh, express uh, a willingness to consider joining. To put this another way, almost seven out of every 10 uh, 18 to 24 year olds, so they would simply never consider joining Tommy Robinson, uh, Tommy Robinson's organisation. So let's get down into the sort of meat of, of this and look at the actual sympathisers of the English Defence League. In terms of those who are aware of the organisation, so these are people who sort of know really what the English Defence League is about. Uh, almost one quarter express sympathy for either the values or the methods. Uh, of the movement, so 24%, quite a significant uh, level of sympathy, but also uh, quite a significant degree of ambivalence as well among those who are aware of the organisation. Another 29% really saying uh, that, they, uh, that they don't know whether or not they are sympathetic with the organisation. So on one level this may be striking, on another I think it's really a reflection of the latent uh, public sympathy that we long had in British politics for radical right, anti-migrant, anti-Islam uh, anti groups. And, and just at the outset, before I kind of zoom in on some of this, um, at the outset, looking at their social characteristics and where they're from and what they do, uh, we can already see how actually some of the stereotypes really don't hold up. I'm not sure if you have the slides uh, in front of you, but just to cast down um, with the dark blue columns being EDL uh, sympathisers and the light blue being the national picture, already you can see that the assumption that this is primarily a story about young, unemployed, working class men really doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Don't forget, obviously, we're looking at uh, sympathisers here. We're not looking at the group of um, of, of uh, typically men who turn up at the demonstrations and rallies. We're looking at that wider circle of potential support. They're more likely than average to be working full time. Um, they're they're um, pretty much just as likely to reject the mainstream parties as a national average. Um, and they were more likely at the last general election to have voted. Um, so perhaps that uh, competing narrative that this is really all about an apathetic army of young unemployed men so it certainly doesn't appear to stand up. Um, just to zoom in on some of this, the bulk of sympathy for the English Defence League, at least in our survey, was coming from the middle-aged and the elderly, more so than, than 18 to 29-year-olds, for example. And this is, just on a side point, again, this is exactly where you'll see the bulk of sympathy, not only for the British National Party, but also for the UK Independence Party. Generally, the story of the radical and extreme right in Britain is a story of a grey base, uh, of a movement that is very much struggling to connect with a new generation. And this sympathy is just not restricted to the unemployed uh, and the working class. There's actually a reasonably um, even 
uh, split across the social classes in terms of EDL sympathy, which is uh, in black, by the way. Um, the national picture here is in blue. Uh, the only class that they are overrepresented uh, in, surprise, surprise, are those skilled manual workers, the so-called C2 voters, who provided the bulk of support for the BNP at elections. Um, they're also providing a lot of support at the moment to the UK Independence Party. Um, and only 3% of these sympathisers are currently unemployed and are experiencing the problems that come with unemployment. Um, so the sort of narrative, the post-2008 collapse of the Lehman Brothers and austerity and economic recession has led to the emergence of a new, more confrontational far-right. I'm somewhat unconvinced by that. Economic insecurity is certainly a characteristic of these supporters, but these are not the citizens who are on the very bottom step of the economic and social ladder. Uh, perhaps unsurprising to find that education is, is, is pretty significant here, that these are primarily citizens who left school at 16 and did not go back into the educational system. They're much less likely than their than they are uh, national counterpart who have benefited from university education. This is all consistent with what we might be expecting. But just to uh, look at their political behaviour, uh, they were actually less likely than, than, than average to say that they do not identify with any of the main parties. Yes, they were four times as likely at the last general election to vote for the BNP or UKIP, but actually the bulk of these sympathisers who are openly supportive of the English Defence League were shifting behind the Conservative Party in the centre-right, uh, far more so than the radical uh, and extreme right. More than two-fifths of these sympathisers voted Conservative at the last general election. And what is, I think, interesting within that um, is looking at the extent to which um, these supporters are giving up on democracy, the extent to which they are dissatisfied with the way that democracy is working. And perhaps we're looking at a constituency of citizens who simply feel as though British democracy has somehow let them down. Uh, and perhaps the argument here that the new far right is anti-democratic, is trying to overthrow the system, um, given that perhaps it's worth exploring uh, the views of its supporters or sympathisers. I mean, the first thing to say is that, surprise, surprise, like many British citizens today, they are dissatisfied with the way that democracy is working in Britain. They are significantly more likely than average to express strong dissatisfaction with the way that democracy is working in Britain. That in itself is not particularly surprising. What I think is positive and optimistic is the fact that only few of those who are agreeing with the organisation think that the political system itself is beyond repair. Less, less than one out of every ten of our supporters think the system is completely <coughs> broken. Rather, the bulk think that the British system has serious faults that need addressing. And in this respect, they are really reflecting a broader national picture. There is no real divergence in terms of their views towards the political system. Where they do diverge from the average citizen, however, is in terms of what they think the system is, what social groups, sorry, the system is representing. There are two revealing questions in this respect. The first is, who do you think the mainstream parties are paying attention to? And the second, that I'll show you in one second, is who do you think the mainstream parties should be paying attention to? And consistent with extreme right voters, generally there's a strong sense that 
uh, immigrants are being prioritised by uh, the mainstream parties. Um, and then in terms of who the mainstream parties should be looking at, there's a, again a significant divergence in terms of those who are sympathetic towards the new far right um, are almost twice as likely to say that the mainstream parties should be looking after uh, native white uh, British citizens, uh, which is really the only significant divergence um, uh, that comes through. I mean, just some background, uh, some background characteristics there. Now, what are these? What are these uh, supporters thinking uh, about some of the key issues uh, today? I mean, it's, it's not very surprising to note that people who sympathise with the English Defence League are far more hostile towards British Muslims and Islam than the national uh, average. That in itself is, is, is perhaps not surprising. Um, but I think there is an interesting question here about whether the new far right is uh, primarily rallying anti Muslim sentiments and anxiety over the compatibility or role of Islam within British society uh, versus the extent to which this movement is just the latest uh, manifestation of generalised prejudice generally and that it's just stepped in where the BNP has left off and it really is just rallying citizens who are hostile towards all minority groups irrespective of whether they are a follower of Islam or not. Um, it isn't surprising to find that those who uh, uh, identify with the EDL are far more concerned about some of the trends that we saw in the census uh, recently and are far more concerned about the perceived threat from British Muslims and Islam. But when given the option, actually, their, their dominant concern, the number one concern for uh, these EDL sympathisers is immigration uh, and asylum, followed secondly by the economy, uh, and we gave them the option, unlike many surveys, we included the option of Muslims in Britain, which actually comes a distant third when respondents are asked to list the most important issues facing Britain. They are over twice as likely as the national average to say that, that uh, Muslims in Britain is an important issue. But foremost, I think the picture here, um, before I kind of I finish the story as such uh, by trying to prove this, but the picture here is very much of a constituency of citizens who feel under threat from many quarters. Top four issues here, immigration, the economy, British Muslims and Europe, I think would provide some initial tentative evidence that we're looking at a constituency of citizens who are generally very anxious about the direction of British society and perceived threats to uh, their sense of national identity or position within that society. What is clear, though, is that that hostility to Islam that we just saw is certainly part of a broader authoritarian, prejudiced outlook. These uh, supporters are significantly more likely than average to express negative views of migrants, to, to back authoritarian measures like restoring the death penalty, um, to view British society as losing um, its, its uh, sense of authority uh, and its sense of discipline. And I think one of the striking characteristics which really reveals a lot about the extreme right generally, anybody who's ever interviewed somebody within the far right will relate to this, I think, um, really concerns their pessimistic view about where Britain is going. And I think there's going to be some important overlaps here with what we're seeing within the radical right today generally, in that 
this sample of citizens who are seeing some uh, appeal in the new far right are far more uh, convinced uh, that Britain is heading into uh, a period of history where relationships between different groups um, get worse, where violence between different ethnic, racial and religious groups will be inevitable, um, where they may need to resort to violence in order to protect their group from perceived threats. And in many respects, it's uh, some, some, something of an apocalyptic, gloomy, dark prediction of where British society is heading and I can see some strong overlaps here in terms of some of the things I'm currently being told during interviews with supporters of another radical right movement in British politics. But they feel very strongly about this issue, I mean just disaggregating the strongly agree from just tending to agree, um, this is where the real difference I think comes in from the national picture that they are very, uh, very firm in their belief about where British society is headed, far more likely to, to, to think that group violence or intergroup violence is inevitable in the future, and absolutely leaning towards the view that Britain uh, is not benefiting at all from rising ethnic and cultural diversity, and that we're heading into something of a fractious uh, period. And I promised I'd stop at 9.20, and I've got one minute left, so I'll summarise my general conclusions here. The full paper, which, which then goes into some, uh, some statistical analysis, using regression analysis, allows us to predict the most important predictors for whether somebody will uh, sympathise with the English Defence League. And some of the things quickly that just emerge as being very significant to predicting that support for the new far right, being male, having a very low level of education, a GCSE-only level of education, are the most important demographic factors. But when we then introduce attitudes into the, into the model, we're then looking at, well, what impact does those, uh, do those xenophobic attitudes, classical racism, political <coughs> protest, and violence have on support? And this really is a movement that's being pushed by xenophobia. It's not just a sort of single issue anti-Islam protest, which I think probably our instincts already were leading us down that alley anyway. But those who do express those xenophobic attitudes are around 59 percentage points more likely than those who do not express those attitudes to uh, sympathise with the English, English Defence League. So that's quite a significant uh, effect. And endorsing the sort of pessimistic, almost pro-violent cluster of attitudes also emerges as a very significant predictor, um, increasing the likelihood that somebody will be receptive to the new far right, thinking that British society will soon dis disintegrate into uh, intergroup conflict and being more willing to back violence as a means of protecting the group. It's not, I, don't, I think it's not just a point of fascination, I think it's highly significant to understanding support for the far right. Um, so supporting the Conservative Party um, and other radical right parties being male, coming from Northern England, reading a tabloid newspaper and expressing racist views are also significant predictors, but they are nowhere near as significant, we find, as just expressing general xenophobia, uh, xenophobic attitudes and, and expressing those pessimistic, pro-violent views. I have six messages for policymakers 
just to give you a sense of what it looks like in terms of those predictors, we've got xenophobia and pessimistic pro-violence being the two most important drivers. There's a pretty clear picture uh, uh, about what's behind uh, this sympathy. The six, the six key messages, just quickly, to perhaps take us into discussion. I mean, I would certainly say that, in a way, this isn't actually about the English Defence League. In a way, this is about where the extreme right is today. A cluster of new far-right groups that are less interested in elections, are more focused on street-based activity, and are targeting seemingly new issues like the grooming of young white children and the perceived threat from Islam to Western states. But this is not... Um, this is not a narrative that is simply pitching to young, unemployed, working-class men. This is a far more uh, nuanced picture, surprise, surprise, that these are also not citizens who are actively endorsing or expressing anti-democratic views. They are what Klingerman once referred to as a dissatisfied Democrats. They are generally accepting of democracy. They really do not like the way that democracy is currently functioning in Britain today. And they're not incoherent in the sense that they're often portrayed as irrational, racist protesters. There seems to be a relatively articulate view behind those who are receptive to the new far right, much like there was a coherent view to BNP voters. They really feel fundamentally uh, under threat from immigration generally, from rising ethnic and cultural diversity. And it really is that xenophobic mindset that's driving uh, citizens to at least consider uh, supporting uh, the new far right.